there was a quote in Babylon 5, great science fiction series, in which one of the characters says, pain always accompanies change. It's what comes out of the pain that endures. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am excited to be joined by K.M. Butler, author of the novel The Raven and the Dove. The Normans are created at one specific moment when Taurin's faced with a choice and he makes his decision. Um, in that moment, he doesn't know it, but it's creating the Normans <laughs> and it changes human history. K.M. Butler is an author of historical novels that seek to highlight the similarities, not the differences, shared by modern readers and their ancestors. He believes good historical fiction transports readers out of the 21st century to understand that people in the past acted as they did for eminently sensible reasons, based on the extent of their knowledge. Today, I'll be chatting with Butler about his debut novel, The Raven and the Dove, which depicts the struggles of identity, culture, and religion in the very first days when Norse settlers and the Christians of northern France began to live side by side. I'd like to start by talking about the historical setting for this novel. Can you tell us uh, more about the Frankish kingdom in 890 um, CE and how you became interested in it? and also? why you decided to start at, at that time. Sure. So I think, you know, looking at, you know, we hear about the Viking age and, and all the pillaging that happened. It's kind of a large period of time uh, st stretching from the very end of the eighth century. So the seven nineties um, into the eight hundreds. Um, but the thing to keep in mind is that at this time of history, <laughs> For the Frankish Empire, had its best days were behind it. <laughs> uh, it was about uh, in in 890 AD. It was about, I think, 60 years after Charlemagne. Um, the the empire that he had created was really disintegrating uh, fairly rapidly, and they, the kings really didn't have as much power as they did previously. Uh, authority and responsibility for defense really devolved down to more local leaders. And as you can imagine, it became a mess. Uh, it was easy pickings for the Vikings when it when they really started swarming in. Um, as I was looking through this period of history, you know, I originally I didn't want to write a book about about Vikings. That really wasn't my intention. But I was really struck by the specifically the Normans, in that when you look at the, the Norman people, they really were a Christian mother and a Viking father. <laughs> uh, they were vicious, brutal, 
warriors, just like the, the, the Vikings, where they threw themselves in the battle with reckless abandon. Uh, but at the same time, they were incredibly pious. You know, they built churches all over the place. They went on crusade out of genuine uh, religious belief. Um, they were very, very, very Christian. Uh, and that it seems like a strange dichotomy, but it really stems from the way that they were created in that, you know, when the Vikings devastated these regions, they devastated the, the uh, temporal authority there, and in some cases, the religious authority, but the people were still living there. You know, these, these quote, wastelands were teeming with, with settlers and farmers who were continuing about their days. But when the Norse started looking at these areas, they really started settling and expanding out from their bases of power and, and ruling as a kingdom. And, and as I thought about that more, you know, I read a book by Lars Brownworth called From Raiders to Kings about the foundation of Normandy. And it really got me thinking, what would it have been like to be living in that region and suddenly these, these pagan Northmen who previously were slaughtering you are coming to live beside you and trade with you and, and interact with you in many ways as equals. It would have been like fascinating because on, on the one hand you have to imagine that the franks were thinking these people are demons but on the other hand hey you need you need a new shovel <laughs> you need some some wood you go to your neighbors and you you, you work out a trade so they had to work together that tension uh to me was fascinating definitely and, I, and and that's what makes your novel so interesting is that that clash of of cultures and you know, one needing the other. Were were the Vikings pushed into that region, or you know, what led them to settle there? So, within so the the area within the, uh, France that I'm really focusing on is it's called the Pied de Co. Uh, it's the region that became that essentially the the northern portion of what was the Duchy of Normandy. Um, in that region, in particular, you have to keep in mind that it's really dominated by the Seine River. It's this winding river that goes from uh, the English Channel, known as Oceanus Britannicus during, during their time, um, all the way to Paris, uh, which at the time was an important city, but not necessarily the most important one in, in, in Francia. But that river was the, the avenue through which the Norse raided all throughout northern France. Um, they they kind of had free reign of the rivers because the, the the Franks didn't have anything to be able to match the, the the Vikings' mobility. So that region had one major city called Rouen, which is, is still there today. But um, it was a it was a power base from which they could spread out and really uh, maintain a beachhead in that region and. Uh, and, and that, I think, was one of the big reasons why they ended up uh, really settling permanently in that, in that area. Because, you know, what Rollo, uh, Jarl Rollo, uh, what he did in northern France when he, he actually settled and kind of took over the territory, that wasn't the first time that they did that. Um, he had uh, actually a friend of his named uh, Gudrun, who was a uh, Viking warrior in uh, England. And he did the same thing. You, you know, the, the, you hear about the Dane law, you hear about what happened in the Shetland Islands and uh, some of those some of those Northern Islands, uh, just North of uh, England. And 
the Vikings were really taking over wherever they could. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why they they left uh, their homelands. Uh, part of it could have been climate. Part of it could have been uh, uh, factional warfare between them. Part of it might have just been uh, famines and droughts that kind of drove them outwards. But they were always seeking more fertile land to be able to take. And Northern France fit that bill very nicely. Well, you've already talked about uh, quite a bit of history that uh, I'm sure we could go on about, but I want to talk a little bit about how you brought that history to life. And in particular, I'm curious about the the opening scenes of the novel that have uh, a, a Norse woman who's in battle armor, and it's kind of a startling image, an unexpected image. Why did you start the novel there, and how does that make this history more real for the reader? Sure. So I think decision to start at that point was affected by a couple different factors. First, as I was plotting out the novel, I really wanted to, to show the, the Christian and the Norse elements kind of colliding together. Um, I wanted to show those first moments whenever the Norse kind of stretched out and, and occupied these lands and what those, those very first interactions would have been like. Um, as I was doing that, I quickly realized that if I had a male Norse warrior coming in and marrying a Christian woman, the Christians would never have accepted that. It would have been viewed as 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 taking away a eligible uh, wife for a Christian, and it would have been it would have gone over very poorly. But if you flip that on its uh, on its head, and you have a Norse shield maiden coming into represent her Jarl among the Christian men. Now that's an interesting dynamic because you have, uh, you have the, the Frankish uh, sexism at play uh, versus the Norse, uh, much more egalitarian type of, uh, uh, not completely, but much more um, opportunity for women in that, in that society. Uh, you have the, the flipping of the usual power structures that, that we often read about. There's a lot of opportunity there. So, once I realized, you know what, my main character is going to be Hala, a shield maiden. Then that raises the next question as I'm, as I'm plotting out this book, what would cause her to want to go and live beside these, these filthy Christians? <laughs> you know, at the time, the Christians really didn't bathe as much as the Norse did. So they literally were filthy. But what, what would cause her to want to do that? That's where it, it really struck me that one of the things about Norse society that seems difficult to process for, for a modern reader is that concept of just, just you know, seeking Valhalla, that sense of you know, dying in glorious battle, bravely uh, striking down your enemies, and then even if you die, you, do, you die on your feet like, like a hero, you know, that, that type of attitude. And it's a very interesting concept that in many ways as I was thinking about it, would I think there would be a tension there about, you know, if you are injured, if you think you're dying, are you going to be as pleased? <laughs> I don't think everyone is going to be excited about the opportunity to, to, to die. <laughs> um, and in the very first scenes, it, it really gives that opportunity. And that the, very, the, the first scene in the novel, you see Hala taking a, taking a wound that she at first thinks this is it, I'm going to die. But instead of that joy that she's been taught her whole life to experience, she feels a very human failing of fear of, oh my God, 
what, what's going on here? What, 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 what am I going to face? And one of the realizations that she comes across is what have I done with my life? Have I done any great deeds to, to be praiseworthy, anything to celebrate? Uh, that moment of doubt really drives forward the rest of the story in that it becomes a story of Hala seeking meaning in her life in a way that she really hadn't thought of before. So from that, it, it, you know, it, it came down to, you know, start your story as close to the inciting incident as you can. So, you know, I have, I have that happening. And then immediately after that is the, the, I throw in the more political situation in that, you know, Rolo is contemplating not just the consequences of this, what was a disastrous battle, but looking long-term at what are we gonna do in a year, in five years, in 10 years? Uh, and that really drives the rest of the plot forward. It gives him the idea to, um, to really diversify his interests, let's say, <laughs> um, which, which I think also ties into the, the dates whenever I start the, the novel. Because, uh, you know, when you look at the history of Normandy, a lot of folks point to uh, a particular treaty in 9-11 in which Rollo and the Frankish king uh, came to terms that Rollo would defend northern Francia from Viking uh, invasion in exchange for legitimacy, essentially, being recognized as Count Rollo of, of this region, which is now known as Normandy or land of the north then. Um, but when you look at the circumstances surrounding that treaty, the Frankish king had just defeated Rollo. Uh, he kind of had him pinned on the ropes, as it were. He was Rollo was surrounded. Uh, there was a uh, there was a Frankish army that was was very very clearly uh, a threat to him at that time. The Frankish king had the advantage. Why would the king come to terms with a pagan who had been terrorizing his kingdom for at this point decades? It had to have been because he knew that even if he killed Rollo, even if he killed Rollo's army, he'd still have to deal with the rest of the Norsemen that were already settled in the region. And that you, you, he, he realized you couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. So he came to terms instead to establish peace. Uh, it's actually a very shrewd move uh, on the king's part, and it worked very well for him. But it suggests that initial settlement, in order for it to be a fait accompli by the time of 9-11, had to have started much sooner. When? I posit that it's, that it's very shortly after uh, the, the Norse suffered a series of setbacks in the late ninth century. Um, they had failed to take Paris. Uh, a Viking army got annihilated by uh, Berenger of uh, uh, Bayou and Rennes. Um, there were a lot of different events there that, that, that showed that, you know, the way that the Norse had been doing things up to this point wasn't working anymore. The Franks were getting smarter and the Norse were really starting to suffer. So that led to an earlier date. Well, yeah, it definitely sounds like a very fertile ground um, to work from as as a historian, as an author, and and you've given us you know the the context for the the setting, um, and you talked about uh, Hala, the Norse shield maiden. Um, who can you talk a little bit about the other character that this story is told through um, Torin? Um, what what role does he play in the story and, and how did you come to create him as a character? Sure. So I, I knew in writing this as in talking about two 
peoples coming together. Uh, really, it, it led naturally to to people coming together as well. Um, and so to have a Hala, I also needed a Taran. And um, he really brings that, that Christian perspective of uh, really understanding, you know, a Christian's hopes and dreams and worldview is fundamentally different from, from that, of a, uh, that of the Norse. And by showing both of them together, I tried to show the tensions that were affecting both sides of them because both Hala and Taran throughout the course of the novel, they end up dedicating themselves to this idea this of a future in which they don't one you know Hala has a purpose you know she can she can see that purpose to her life uh she can support her jarl she can achieve riches in 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 fame like she wants uh for Torin, he's looking for survival he wants his people to survive um throughout the course of the beginning of the, the book the franks in his village they've kind of flown under the radar. <laughs> um, after their town was burned uh, decades earlier, they actually moved the town up a tributary of the Seine, uh, kind of out of the way. And with the Norse looking for uh, riches and plunder, they kind of left them alone. They, they, didn't, they, they didn't really take much notice of them, but that shatters very early in the novel. And Tari now has to find a way to, to help his people survive. He's one of his, his town leaders. And he really views it as his, it's his responsibility to try to protect his people if he can. Um, but it becomes very difficult and he's put into a kind of a no-win scenario very early. Uh, one of the things I thought was uh, kind of fun as I was as I was plotting out the book is that you know a lot of a lot of books that deal with a romance between characters, not necessarily romance, but any any genre. Um, typically it ends with a wedding and <laughs> mine kind of begins with a wedding, but then it's, then what, you know, how do you live with someone who you find reprehensible, who you can't understand despite your efforts? Um, what are those tensions? How do you get through day by day? How do you get through a dinner? You know, how do you get through, uh, the first sacrifice whenever your wife wants to paint herself with animal blood and, uh, sprinkle it all over your crops? Uh, you know, how, what does that do to, a marriage? How does it strain it? Uh, and in, re in, in a very real way, those tensions match those of both of their peoples as they're trying to kind of move on and, and build something out of the ashes of a previous world. Yeah, I can see how that would definitely be shocking. It'd be, you know, a, a, a huge cultural shock. And um, I can also see how that helps bring this part of history to life, you know, bring it down to those minutest minute details um, that we can all sort of relate to, like you said, having dinner with one, uh, one another. I find it um, interesting that you, you have a, a book here about Vikings, a novel about Vikings, but you don't focus on warfare. You do focus on that clash of cultures. Can you tell me more about that, that decision not to focus on warfare? And was it a risk on your part, do you think? I think it certainly was a risk. Uh, I'll answer that first. Um, I've always been drawn to those moments of transition. Um, my, my family is Irish, but we come to the Irish by way of the Normans, by way of, the, or, yeah, by way of the English, by way of the Normans. So my, like my family came over with uh, William the Conqueror. 
So we were originally Norman, which means who knows where we were from. But, you know, the, the migrations of peoples, the mergings and, and splittings of, of individual identity. You look at, you know, what's happening in, in Russia, in, in, in Ukraine, as far as the Ukrainians and the Russians and, and the admixing and splitting of, of, of their peoples and the, the implications that that can have. You know, I'm fascinated by those kinds of considerations. Uh, so seeing and, and conceiving of these, these initial moments of the creation of a new people. Uh, and in, in fact, in the novel, you could argue the Normans are created at one specific moment when Taran's faced with a choice and he makes his decision. Um, in that moment, he doesn't know it, but it's creating the Normans <laughs> and it changes human history uh, to one specific moment of doubt, you could say. Um, those kinds of those kinds of exercises and like, well, what would this have been like? What would have, you know, what, it's like, what would people have thought when they saw uh, the Visigoths marching over the hills toward Rome? I mean, what would people have thought whenever they're on a boat escaping Constantinople and they see the cross fall and the, uh, the crescent go up? You know, those, those moments are just, are just pivotal and powerful. And I, I love just exploring those where, where I could. So that, I think that made a, I've always searched for those. I've completed two other novels that I'll be publishing shortly. One is uh, about uh, medieval Venice uh, in which uh, there was a critical uh, treason that took place uh, in, the, in the Republic and the impact and the implications of that. Another one I've, I'm actually publishing next is about Henry Tudor. Um, in his exile leading up to the Battle of Bosworth. You know, he was in exile for 14 years. What does that do to a person? How does that twist a person and, and traumatize a person to make them want to risk everything on a desperate fool's gamble to take a throne by, by uh, armed battle? It's, uh, it, it's fascinating looking at him, but that exile and the traumas that he suffered altered the course of history. Um, those transition moments are just, are just really fascinating to me. I think, to get back to your other question, I think having a Viking novel that's not about head splitting, although there is, <laughs> um, and which resides in, a, in the sphere of romance as well, but without being a romance, there's a challenge to that. It doesn't, it doesn't easily fit into either genre. Uh, one of my, uh, one of my colleagues uh, said that it's, it's more intellectual than the average Viking fair, um, and, and, it, and it really is because it's, it, it's, it's about those, those tensions rather than the, the violence or the action. And I, I think folks who are looking for something with the violence, uh, you know, they'll, they'll find elements of it. Uh, we have, I have, I was actually kind of laughing at one point where I have a siege, a single combat, uh, a raid, and uh, a battle <laughs> all throughout the, the course of the book. Uh, at one point, they burn a town, uh, it, all sorts of, sort, sorts of violence are in it, but it's not in it at its core a violent book. It's really about these two people who come from very different worlds trying to make the best of the situation that they have. And in, and in so doing, actually discovering a kernel of commonality that I truly think is common to all people. Um, if you look hard enough, you can find it.
Hello, this is Colin Mustful, the founder of History Through Fiction and the host of this podcast. I hope you're enjoying the interview and I want to thank you for listening. History Through Fiction is a small, independent press and we'd love your support. You can support us and our authors by subscribing to this podcast, subscribing to our website, buying our books, asking your local library or bookstore to stock our books, or just by telling a friend about us. With your support, we can create more content like this and continue to bring important and entertaining historical stories into the world. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of the interview. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more. What do you think readers of today can can learn from this, can learn from this story, can learn from this history? Why is it important to share a story from more than a millennia ago? So there are some, there is one philosophy of history that says that humans are ever marching onward, ever improving. And then there's another philosophy that says that humans are exactly as we have always been. It's just that our knowledge or our technology or, our, or the, the, the width of our perception has changed. I'm very much of the latter. I don't think that humans are any different than we were in Egyptian times, than we were in Viking times. You know, we're all struggling to, to survive, to, to thrive, uh, facing our mortality, facing uh, the dangers around us exactly as we ever have. Um, and I really think that when you, my goal if, if a reader could take anything out of my novel, I would really want it to be that these people weren't foolish. They weren't uh, stupid. They weren't any better than we are. They were really just trying their best to survive the, their circumstances and their times with limited information. And honestly, I don't think we, any of us would do any better, even with our, 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 our vaunted sensibilities. Um, I think in a more practical uh, sense, you know, there was a, there's a quote, uh, I'm a big science fiction fan, and there was a quote in Babylon 5, great science fiction series, in which one of the characters says, pain always accompanies change. It's what comes out of the pain that endures. And that when we look at things that are happening now, we, 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 we talk about the immigration debate or arguments about um, how we, how we want to define ourselves or uh, how we identify our, our, our identities, uh, both within the culture and compared to other cultures. You know, these, these, these arguments are, are particularly relevant uh, now even. Um, ultimately, when you have these moments of transition, when you have cultures that are clashing with each other and really testing the, the fitness of different ideas, it's a destructive, it's a, it's a violent process, but it serves a purpose to, to, to weld something stronger. And if we're smart, we'll pay attention and we'll embrace the good from our other cultures around us and, and allow it to improve us uh, in, in, a, in a way that we can't do if we try to remain pure or try to remain un, un, untainted or uh, unchanged. Ultimately, unchanged means we're, we're choosing to remain uh, less suited to, to survive. <laughs> you know, ultimately, you know, we, we really need to learn from each other and we need to, we need to let in the change that's good. At one point, um, uh, Taran actually says to Hala, you know, we, we deserve to, to, 
to get beaten because we we refuse to change and maybe it's time that we did and he recognizes that you know uh, ultimately the, the the norse couldn't have uh, inflicted as much damage as they did if the franks hadn't been weak uh, and they allowed them to, themselves to become so only six decades earlier they were the, the franks were unstoppable um and so i think there are very strong lessons to take out of our uh, out of this story for our society today to, to be a little bit more open-minded a little bit more receptive to uh to the cultures around us well i think that's really well said and i, I certainly appreciate that perspective um I, I didn't expect to be enlightened by babylon 5 but you know. <laughs> Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about your research. Well, first of all, you know, I'll say that in two, 2017, I had the the great fortune to travel to Norway, and I got to to see Viking ships and in, in, in a museum with Viking artifacts. Um, I don't know how long ago you started your research. I know travel's gotten a little bit tricky in the last couple of years. Um, have you traveled to those regions and, and been able to see the artifacts um, up firsthand? I haven't been able to travel into into Europe. Um, where possible, when the when the artifacts have come to me, I've 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 been there in a, in a heartbeat. Uh, uh, just uh, just a couple miles away, they we have a authentically reproduced uh, a Viking uh, longship that uh, you know every every season they they uh, kind of trot it out and display it and everything. It's interesting being able to see the Whenever you're there standing, looking at it, the dimensions become real. The uh, how how tightly packed these folks would have been <laughs> on these long voyages. How it's not as if you can get up and you really stretch your legs. Even <laughs> you know you're stuck in this position for for all this time. It's it's remarkably it's a remarkably shallow uh, keel. It's it, you know some of those details really become very. Uh, very noticeable uh and and it it, it, it it seeing that leaves me with the perception that these people were insane <laughs> i mean their their tolerance for uh for the unknown and for danger was so much higher than what we have now uh, it was not a secure ride i mean i'll go on a i'll go on a plane and i'll grumble if it's uh if there's a little bit of turbulence these people they were they were they were living with turbulence for the entire voyage every voyage <laughs> um and it just really strikes you as wow this is this is this is wild. Um, one of the other things that, I, that um, in, in my research that I came across that, was, that surprised me was their height. <laughs> um, the Norse were not remarkably tall people. Um, they were they were just like everyone else. Uh, we have this perception of of Viking raiders as being these these giants with with you know thick armed and, and monstrous and and armed to the teeth and uh you know that's in, in in dirty vile heathens but they weren't they were they were cleaner than the christians they were uh roughly the same size as the christians it, i think in the accounts that do talk about you know these towering towering you know barbarians i think it, what they're what it's really capturing more is their their swagger their confidence, that that lack of fear, that lack of um, hesitation. Um, they believe that if they die, they're going to their eternal reward. So it, they, there's just an unleashing of this ferocity that that I think the monks who saw it, you know, memory fades, 
there were no photographs back then. There were no video records. Uh, everything becomes a little bit more superlative in uh, in memory. And I think what they were they were really capturing with those descriptions was more the just the the. the the, the sheer force of will and the confidence of these warriors they were coming across is so completely different from Christianity. Um, but uh, that really struck home whenever we saw some, I had the chance to look up close to some of, some of their, some of their armor, some of their weapons, some of their, um, even their, even just their clothes and being able to see, you know, this is, this is quite ordinary actually. <laughs> um, I, I kind of equated it the same way that when you see a picture of, of some people it doesn't do them justice. It's like, oh, is that really the same person? You can't really tell because they're gregarious, they're, they're, you know, loud, they're gesturing all the time. They just have this life to them that, um, that you that you miss if you don't experience it firsthand. And I think maybe that was, that was in some of those descriptions too. But uh, unfortunately, I would I would love to have been able to get to, uh, to Norway, to Denmark, even even into uh, uh, north of the Seine. Uh, and, and just just plot around uh, in the marshes over there a little bit. Uh, that would have been wonderful, but I didn't have that chance. You'll, you'll have to make it a future trip. That's right. <laughs> um, you, you've already talked about uh, your forthcoming novels. Um, without well, I, I'm curious though, uh, especially for other writers that that are listening. Uh, tell me about how you decided to bring your novels to publication because there's so many different routes you can go and and what was that process like for you was it challenging to learn to how to get them out into the world or or what's it been like for you so it's been quite a process and quite a journey uh i started the way that most most authors do thinking, oh, I'm going to go to an agent and I'm going to get tradition published and I'm going to sell 100,000 copies in the first week. Um, that's incredibly difficult. <laughs> uh, it's incredibly difficult under the best of circumstances. I think, you know, we touched on a little bit that my novel is a little bit in between genres. Uh, there's romance, but it's not romance. There's action, but it's not an action novel. Uh, there's adventure. It's not an adventure novel. Uh, there are elements of the literary, but it's not a literary novel. Uh, it kind of resides in a, in a in the Venn diagram. It's the little dot in between all three of them. Um, that makes it a little bit challenging. Um, with historical fiction in particular, it becomes it becomes difficult sometimes in order to uh, to rise up above the the mass of say young adult fiction novels, uh, uh, romance novels, uh, you know, fantasy novels tend to be popular these days. Uh, it, 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 historical fiction is being forgotten a little bit unless you're writing World War II or the 20s. <laughs> um, uh, so it, it, going in, I realized that. Um, my style tends to be a little, a little bit more intellectual than, you know, my, my book is not a beach read. Uh, it's I think it's entertaining. Uh, the folks who have who have who have uh, read it and reviewed it have have felt that it's been uh, well done and, and satisfying. Um, but it's not it's not a beach read, you know. It's it 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 does require a little bit of thought. Uh, so all of that makes it a little bit a little bit of a hard sell for traditional publishers. Uh, it took me a while to realize that uh, there was a point when I thought to myself, you know, 
if I keep going as this is, my chances of ever being traditionally published are almost nil. Uh, the, the, the demographics, the, um, the targeting, the uh, subject matter, the, uh, the genre, you know, it all chipped away a little bit at the, at the probabilities. Even if I write the most well-written uh, novel that's ever existed, um, it, it seems unlikely. And I had a choice of whether I wanted to change the style or stick to it and, and see through. And there was a piece of advice that I, that I heard uh, from a friend that write the novel, write the kind of novel that you want to read. And uh, so that's what I did. And uh, even though that, that would probably shut down some of the, some of the routes for me, um, I wanted to write the kind of novel that I, I would enjoy writing because ultimately, you know, you know, the internet's made people think that like every single novel is going to be a bestseller and, and it's not, you know, for the most part, you know, you can, you can, your work a day, you know, you're going to, you're going to publish it. You're going to put out the best product that you can, you're going to get it professionally edited. You're going to um, make it as uh, compelling of a story as possible. Uh, but ultimately you're going to work on the next one and the next one and the next one. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bit of a churn and you have to enjoy it. You have to really appreciate what you're writing. So as I, as I was looking at that, I said, you know what? All right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to self-publish. And um, I'm very glad that I did. Uh, what really turned me around to, in my perceptions of self-publishing was when I read about the lack of support that many independent publishers give to authors, even traditionally published authors um, with the big five, if you're not considered one of the one of the top releases for, for that quarter, the level of support you're gonna get is very limited. Um, and that, that suggested to me that the gap between self-publishing and independent publishing was less than I had thought it would be. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, you know what? I can do this. And, and you know, my wife and I, we sat down, uh, we said, if, you're gonna, if we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this right. We're gonna get professional, we're gonna do professional editing, uh, professional proofreading, um, uh, make it as, uh, you know, work with a layout artist, work with a, a professional cover designer, uh, did everything we could to present as strong of a offering as we could. So that when I put that price onto it, I feel confident that I'm giving someone more than that in value uh, for, for the experience. And uh, I, I invite any, every, every reader out there that if you ever feel that you didn't get that value for it, I wanna hear from you. I have my, my email address and my, uh, uh, my Twitter handle uh, in the back of, of, of uh, my book. I will have them in all my books. I really do wanna hear from it if, if anyone feels it's not, not, not the case. Um, uh, or if you enjoy it, hey, let's chat. I love talking to people. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it was it was kind of a long a long process. Probably took about five or six years to come to that conclusion that you know what I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this alone, and um, it's been an education. <laughs> I will say that. Well, I, I want to commend you for for moving forward with it um, and for going through that process and for just having enough stick to itiveness to to do it and to get it out there in the world and and um you know you did a great job you have a great story it's you know professionally done like you like you said and um you know i th i think that 
it meets all, all the, the, the quality standards that of any big five, you know, press. So um, just congratulations on that. And then the fact that you, you have these uh, other novels forthcoming, I think that's just wonderful. And we could probably have a whole Ted talk, you know, just talking about that process. Um, but I think you laid it out pretty well. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, and I have to say that, you know, having in selecting great partners is is vital. Um, uh, My beta readers, uh, there are about a half dozen folks who I've who I've reached out to who have have provided very strong feedback uh, on the on the content as I was writing it. Uh, My wife is a brutal editor. Um, She is. I think she's put this sucks <laughs> in the uh, in the margins of some of some of my uh, some of my stories, um, but her feedback's always right. And and really, as an author, you have to be you have to be willing to embrace that feedback. And and your default setting has to be the other person is right, and this is why. Um, you can't be looking for reasons to um, to refute them, or else you're never going to learn and you're never going to improve. Uh, so, you know, my beta readers, a vital step of the process. Uh, uh, arc readers, um, I had the good fortune of finding a, a wonderful cover design company called Cutting Edge uh, Studios. They are they are phenomenal with with cover. I was really excited about how it turned out. Um, uh, professional, I used Monza for. Uh, for the layout, uh, they did a they did a great job. Um, and then Luna Imprints is uh, who I used for my for my proof reading. So uh, phenomenal folks, good great partners. You really can't do it entirely alone. Um, you you really need to get it out there, and you need to be receptive of of the feedback that you receive, so that you can you can do everything you can. Because ultimately, the goal is to produce a great product that your readers enjoy and that they they get something out of. Um, I would love to, <laughs> if I could have a reader, just just one reader, <laughs> think about my book three months after reading it. That's good enough for me. I'm that's that's winning. <laughs> that's what makes me happy. And uh, where can someone get the Raven and the Dove? Um, can they buy direct from you, or or where should they find it? Sure. So the the easiest route is probably Amazon. Um, for uh, bookstores, I also have it published on Ingram. Uh, I can reach out with direct links if you prefer, but you can search, you know, Butler Raven Dove, and it'll pop right up. But uh, it is available uh, both ebook and uh, and paperback. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can also go to my to my website, and I have links to. to I will have links to all of my books, um, including uh, the next uh, novel, the Henry Tudor novel called The Welsh Dragon, which will be coming out later this year. Great. Um, well, I've been talking with K.M. Butler, author of The Raven and the Dove. Uh, Kevin, this has been a, a great conversation. I'm so glad we could do it. Well, thank you very much for having me. I, I really appreciate not only the time, but also what you're doing here. Because, you know, uh, being able to have these conversations and, and, and elevate what could just be a, a silly little story to, to a, a conversation about uh, these, these larger issues and some of the, some of the overall community that we're that we have as writers is phenomenal so thank you